Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Captivating Fictions. All of our music comes from Tim Byrne, saxophonist, composer, and record label owner, who claims he had no interest in playing an instrument until he attended college. We range across multiple albums and band lineups. The pieces come from Visitation Rites, Claws and Reflect, Diminutive Mysteries, Sacred Vows, Sanctified Dreams, and Preemptive Denial. Our guest today, Talia Field, is an acclaimed experimental novelist, essayist, and poet, modes of writing she often combines in one text. It's also likely that historical figures, philosophers, or dog trainers will walk onto the page to be the connective tissue between multiple distinct texts that span decades. In what follows, we'll hear Field talk about one piece of her writing as a braid of texts or voices. And today, Interchange attempts a kind of mimicry. We'll look at three books that form a trilogy of investigation and creation, Bird Lovers, Backyard, Experimental Animals, and most recently, Personhood, just published by New Directions. The first and third might be characterized as elastically essayistic, and the middle text is a novel, though subtitled Reality Fiction. Experimental Animals, published by Solid Objects, explores the origins of both experimental literature and modern experimental biomedicine, based on the marriage of Claude and Fanny Bernard. The novel also features women activists who have been overlooked in science history and focuses particularly on the living animal body in pain, vivisection, as foundational to the history of physiology. All three books are connected by explorations on science, philosophy, and identity, and with the most recent, personhood, the consideration of how beings as selves are entangled in ways that call into question the arbitrariness and cruelty of human classifications and value hierarchies. The cast of characters we'll meet includes Claude Bernard, the French father of physiology and experimental medicine, vile practitioner of vivisection, Anna Kingsford, medical doctor and anti-vivisectionist, Conrad Lorenz, Austrian father of animal behaviorism and Nazi bird lover, Vicky Hearn, dog trainer and philosopher, Happy the elephant, and Adam the parrot. Throughout, we'll hear excerpts from all three books read by the author. And now, Captivating Fictions with Talia Field on Interchange on WFHB. Bird Lover's Backyard is first, Experimental Animals second, and then Personhood in terms of the this particular group of books. How how do you want to start? I mean, again, these three books are, uh, two books are fairly similar, obviously, and then the, the central, the center book, Experimental Animals, is a different beast in a sense. Yeah, so actually, I mean, it was interesting that you brought up chronology because I worked on experimental animals for almost 17 years of work, um, and over the course of that time, a lot of um, I did a lot of other other thinking, other questions, and it wasn't immediately clear to me which which questions, which inquiries, sort of stuck together, and which were sort of separate. Um, and when it came to really starting to pull anim- uh, experimental animals together, I realized actually that I couldn't move on the enormity of that book until I wrote some and, and got some other pieces sort of off the table. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, Bird Lovers emerged out of the, all of the work I was doing in that time period, um, and I pulled that, that collection together 
it in order in some ways to sort of do it justice and then to be able to do experimental animals justice um, because I needed to I needed to tease them apart because they were asking very different kinds of questions related but but different around animal human relationships. 17 years is a long time, but uh, why not? I mean, you're you're working in, in this space and trying to craft something that has uh, great meaning. Well, yeah, especially that book, Experimental Animals, which was so archive-based. Mm-hmm. Um, I had to be able, to, of course, to go in person to France, to all of the many, many archives that I used to, to get the information for that book. Um, so it just took, yeah, it was a very long labor of love and and the questions I was thinking about, the kinds of the, the, the legacy of our relationship to animals um, that in some ways emerged from that period, you know, it was a combination of the legacy of that plus other thinking that I had already been doing um, around different moments in the history of science in particular, different ways that narrative work when it comes to animal-human relationships. And I realized that it was too much all messed up uh, together. And that's why the, the different books emerged. And of course, personhood kind of picks up in some ways, some of the pieces in personhood pick up where Bird Lovers uh, leaves off as a collection and continues uh, some of the lines of inquiry that that book was was engaged in. Having read uh, Bird Lovers Backyard last and having just finished it, um, it's freshest in my mind, but also interestingly um, connected to my own reading. And again, this show I've had, um, I don't know if you know her or not, Colin Dayan on... Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, uh, and who, of course, uh, relies heavily on Vicki Hearn's work. Exactly. Uh, also, and so it was a pleasure to, you know, read that piece in particular uh, on on Vicki Hearn and her thinking. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that, just because it was okay. fun to me, and it was right there. You know, it's right there. It's fresh in my mind, and this will help, I think, um, also in terms of thinking about the text as one comes to it as a reader, as it has multiple parts, text that uh, that you, as you say, you you borrow or use from from other people vicky hearn is one of course and then obviously there are eaching pieces in there as well and then personal footnotes right those are personal Yep. Yeah, it's. I mean, yeah. I, I never want to assume those those That's things. Right. Yes. Right. <laughs> they seem personal. Um, they didn't need to be personal, but you wrote them as personal, so I I made the assumption. So often, what we hear from authority are monologues. When a dog first learns sit as a story, it's often about power, bribery. It's still one way. In other words, she appears to obey, but nothing's being said. One day, the dog sits all on her own, not just sitting around, but sitting in the manner of speaking. And if her command of language is respected, she's heard. Vicky wrote of Goering, the head of the Humane Society in Nazi Germany, making a radio announcement in 1933 that, in order that animal torturing shall not continue, I have now stepped in and will commit to concentration camps those who still think that they can continue to treat animals as inanimate property. The speech was ostensibly about vivisection, but more than that, it legitimized killing vicious or degenerate, mainly Jewish, scientists. Hearn uses Goering to show how displays of kindness can hide whole heaps of cruelty. Bandit's action was considered sufficiently criminal to warrant his death, what the people for the ethical treatment of animals labeled a sad necessity. She points out that in the Republic, Plato considered dogs most able to locate and guard the just city. 
while for providing the wrong sort of training, the poets were dismissed. But poetry is like Bandit in that it has no power over the state. And because it has no power over the state, it has no allegiance to the state, at least not under the conception of the state invoked by the word democracy, a conception that creates the fiction of the state obeying its citizens through the vote, as well as of citizens obeying the fictions of the state. So first, let's let's talk about that as as a, a kind of method or a form. No, it's a, it's like um, how you feel reading, and then writing about her reading and writing about you know parts of what she thinks about while she's reading. It's not always reading, but yeah. but books are often involved, which okay. is funny because I often have experiences and then I and then I make sense of them through reading. Mm, okay. uh, and that piece is actually a good example of that, where the three different. The, it's a braid. And yes, you're right. The three different uh, strands of the braid. One is my experience working with Vicki Hearn directly, which I did as an animal trainer. Um, and the kind of you know, lessons that I learned as a person about myself and my relationship to, at that point, my dog, Lila. Um, and just how powerful and humbling it was to work with someone with a philosophical and a poetic mind about something so tangible as, as dog training. Hmm. And the reason I had sought her out was because I was so attracted to that philosophical basis, how philosophy like that enacts itself in real life. And I found that to be such a powerful time for me. And so the I Ching simultaneously, my, I wasn't really a reader really growing up. And, the, and, and I, as I say in that piece, like my first real relationship, ironically, was in some ways with the I Ching as a book, which became a very practical source of well, both frustration and mystery and wisdom. Um, but the book uh, was, I was having this experience where I was constantly coming to a part where it was sort of telling me youthful folly, youthful folly. And I was not humble. I couldn't figure out the humility that the piece was talking about. I also was beginning a sort of Buddhist practice at the time. And so the idea of sitting, and then of course the command sit uh, when you're working with dog training and, and what it means to command or even expect collaboration from an animal. So a lot of this was going on. And then I, so I was thinking through that. Mm. Um, I do use uh, a lot of her work, a bandit in that piece only, but partly because it connects to the Conrad Lorenz piece in there where there's a sort of criminalization. I've, I've been very interested, of course, since working with Vicky on how the criminal system works with animals. Um, I do have a tendency to seek out exposure of villains. And again, it, maybe it's the wrong thing to say, but uh, as you mentioned, the, the piece on Conrad Lorenz, that's an exposure of a problematic personality who, like, I think, Claude Bernard in your novel, can I call it a novel? Yeah. Okay, thank yep. you. Okay, good. Uh, in your novel, Experimental Animals, it just presents as a uh, an entangle... What is this? Is this a, a Gordian knot situation? Where we <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, where we try to untangle what's good, what's not, what, what came out of it that's good, what, you know, is, is the good tainted by what's so terrible about it all? All these questions are sort of wrapped into these pieces. Uh, Vicki Hearn, uh, that piece asks us to think about how animals and people communicate or don't communicate and how we miscommunicate and how we don't respect the, that the animal communicates. And Conrad Lorenz is a you know, well-respected 
probably even loved by many people, um, uh, for his work on uh, basically behaviorism, right? Uh, uh, trying to uh, attach uh, patterns of action that you could analogize to human action as well. Animals are like humans. Humans are like animals. Um, tell us a little bit about Lorenz, if you don't mind, uh, and, and we can set up that piece. Right. So Vicky was all about a certain syntax or the sort of grammar of meaning and relationships. And she was really about how there has to be a kind of coherence to authority and that language is a form of authority. And if you're not coherent in how you're communicating, then animals respond to that incoherence. And that's where you get things like a bite. Chapter one, stand on the bridge between lung and matter, on a boat handled by Charon, between stalling and starting. Bacteria, we know you as you wiggle in our thoughts, a compass in the head leading to the spoil, the scroll. Proverbs 8.27, when he established the heavens, I was there, when he set a compass upon the face of the depth. This compass, the man in his ignorance of the world heaping around him, agony and ecstasy his narrow experience a wiggle he defines by ignoring bacteria even as they evolve under his tongue okay that's not quite true william blake couldn't have known that things as small as bacteria or atoms could pass between larger mortal barricades william blake couldn't decide which was worse to read the scroll and stare at the compass, or punish the sins and steer without stars. Or the third way, to fall into transformed parts, give up these choices and become a deity, a rot diet. There is only me to eat, and there you are, said William Blake, saintly heretic. Proverbs 8.36, all they that hate me love death. In the loss of a brother, there vibrates a yellow-green border. Brother slips on the fetid mud of the shore, coin in hand. We all lose brothers between fingers and clouds. Angels he thought he saw writhing in a tree became angels he knew. They came unexplained and unscientific. Roots imagine a compost. There is no philosophy in the material, but endless material. In other words, entropy is kept low because there is something outside us to take our trash. This is more than a clever game. Brothers who have died provide a thin, vulgar layer that supports life. In the radioactive, there is energy bent in the wrong direction and new loss. But there's a story that will steer the dead back toward us or grant access to the dark matter between planets, thoughts, the atmosphere which allows travel or transference between orbiting masses. Dead brothers are as common as death, and what's not to love in death? Lorenz and Bernard were are both, you know, fathers of, right? Lorenz is sort of the father of animal behavior, and Bernard is like the father of uh, physiology, right, or experimental medicine. I was a student of the history of science, is really one of the things that I was most uh, involved in studying, and I was always amazed that we would hear about the, these fathers of X or Y without really understanding the complexity of who they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and in both cases, uh, I was very interested in looking further into them and found uh, really through my research that, in fact, I really found that their science was extraordinarily problematic. 
that they really weren't heroes. I would have a hard time calling them heroes on any level. And um, in fact, their findings, because their, their processes were so problematic, their findings are actually mostly irrelevant today. Mm. They actually didn't make discoveries that were that meaningful or that have endured. Um, but yet, especially Claude Bernard in France, I mean, he's a national hero. There's a million streets named after him, statues, you know, um, but, but his, the power of his work was so compromised by his process and his method. So this is one of those places where I was entangled when I was working on the two of them. So I pulled the Lorenz piece out really because I was so interested in his storytelling. He basically tells stories, Mm -hmm. but it's not very scientific. Um, And of course, because he was a Nazi sympathizer, you end up with these very bizarre views of humanity through the lens of animals. He, He kind of really uses animals to talk about people. And I wanted to get into the meat and grit of what's happening in the storytelling level with his use of analogy in particular. You know, again, you hit on some some important themes of your work, right? Storytelling, narrative, in a way, I suppose, how it tyrannizes us as readers or writers as well. We're sort of stuck in these particular ways we read things and the ways that things are written, uh, as you as you say already, can can hide the, you know, other other stories or other facts or, or things of that nature. So uh, how we tell stories and how we recognize stories are um, uh, a, a very important part of your work as well. Exactly. That's actually probably a through line if you go all the way back to my first books, like Point and Line, even though they weren't explicitly about animals such per se, they really were about sort of the story we tell about ourselves, who we are, what is a self, where do we begin and end, (laughs) you know, kind of how are we only one story, why aren't we 50 stories? So those questions have um, definitely obsessed me for a very long time. <laughs> right. I like that very much. I like um, the problem that is Conrad Lorenz, which you you kind of answer him, right, with um, Heine Hedwig? Is that... Heine Hedegaard, yeah, who was a, a very important man in sort of... Um, the, the burgeoning field of sort of almost, uh, uh, I think it's like semiotic, bio-semiotics bio now. Mm. I don't quite know where that field has gone, but it's really about the meaning-making of animals, um, which ties in a bit to, to Vicki Hearn, of course. Right. And he was really one of the first people who, unlike Lorenz, really didn't look particularly, I, he would have been appalled at the level of captivity, for example, that a lot of Lorenz's animals were in. Um, and he really studied the condition of captivity, which... Um, you know, again, I sort of touch on it in Bird Lovers, but of course, I come back to it in a very big way in personhood. Right. So I'm interested. I was always very interested in in his early work in that period on on really making zoos um, a less torturous environment mm. and the artificiality of looking at animal behavior in captivity as as indicative of anything except pathology. Right, right. And I thought, and I think that's a very important point. It is, and it's it's a it's a fascinating one, really, in terms of all experiment, all medicine, and the, you know the idea that these laboratory experiments are indicative of laboratory experiments. Uh, you know <laughs> that you couldn't you couldn't take them anywhere else. Um, exactly. And that you know it struck me as a strong part of the the Hedegar, you know, response to these these are animals, uh, non-human animals that are sort of warped into the human space in a lot of ways, and and how they have to uh, navigate that. Yeah, that the word warping is perfect. You know, the kind of stereotype behavior, all of the very very troubling things you witness in animals who are in captivity. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is a form of torture. You know, that leads, of course, to my interest in, in the experimental animal storyline, which is really the rise of the laboratory as a phenomenon. 
And because it, it, it's so prevalent in our lives today, but, it, you know, people, I think, think of it as a very natural part of our culture, but right. in fact, it has a very particular origin story. And I was very interested in what that story was and the, and the narrative structure that had to be built up to allow it to exist and to grow in the, in the forms that it has. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so that's a, that's a very good point about how both laboratories, zoos, all of these extraordinarily artificial environments don't tell us much about animals, um, except the bias of the, of the scientists. <laughs> right. right. That's a Nietzschean quote there, I think, too, about the, <laughs> the philosopher who only builds systems of himself. Disobedience seems like a yes or no answer to an easy question. Children break rules, teenagers break rules, middle-aged women break rules. In fact, there's likely not a living creature who hasn't disobeyed some rules. The story of God's garden follows in kind, a false conflict between freedom and survival. The wild creature says, bite, you will not die. But the God says, oh yes you will. Adam instantly sees that the rules are mere tricks and nonsense made up by an easily frightened man. It's not eternity, but mortality that's bliss. Fruit rots sweet and falls apart, revealing the seeds it evolved to carry. There is no death in mortality. Springtime in captivity and one or two birds on rare occasion may bond in the sanctuary. They scrounge scraps into a makeshift nest. But there's no encouraging brooding, because what follows would be a clutch, and that would be too devastating, even deadly. In a nest hidden well enough to evade dismantling, the eggs are removed and boiled, put back dead. There's a reason broodiness is selected out from domestic birds. Farmers want productivity to prevail over family. Domestication eliminates claims to privacy, a life cycle de facto and de jure already spoken for. But captive wild animals do not accept punishment in response to bites and hiding. Those are wild ways, not wrong ones. God tries to deny Adam the wild right to deceive. The idea of the constructed false space or the constructed space like a zoo that is that is not a a home in any real way for human or a, uh, animal, uh, but uh, it's not dissimilar to stories or you know books etc. that are sort of constructed captivities in a lot of ways. And and it seems to me like a lot of your work is also trying to undo that particular aspect of writing within covers, you know, trying to, to not let the idea of story dominate or the idea of how we think about stories dominate the thing you're writing. Um, they're not just disjunctive. Uh, they juxtapose in ways that make sense. But then there are things that make a reader work very hard to try to determine sense. These are points you're trying to make through the form itself. Yeah, and I think there's probably two, I would, I would identify two reasons why the, my work is generally always like this. One is that I really came up in theater. I worked in theater from when I was a young teenager all the way till my early t- 30s. And so a lot of my interest in storytelling is how people speak, how people sound, and the kind of performative environment, it, it, almost in a Steinian sense. Like I think of the text and the and the book and the page as a performance environment. And therefore, I, I don't believe I've ever been entirely comfortable with sort of a written style. Mm. 
Um, and so I think that's probably one trajectory of what you would see in my work. Because when I started writing books, it was really an effort to kind of translate all my performance ideas into this new and sort of alien form. So I think that there's that. But there's also, yeah, I think the second piece that you brought up that I think is quite insightful is that I'm not often comfortable with stories where there's a singular and hermetic viewpoint. Mm -hmm. That's just not how I, maybe again, because of theater where you have multiple characters always arguing, talking, uh, you know, working, negotiating space. I think that I think of stories as negotiated space Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. And therefore the page, the rupturing of kind of a, narrative surface is a bit interesting to me when it is dialectic or dialogic polyphonic it's a cacophony of ideas and people are and people are motivated to sort of bring their ideas forward despite the fact that other people might not agree in personhood there's a piece that we may or may not discuss about irrational situations mm-hmm. and that's a little bit my narrative theory in a certain way like i feel like stories are kind of more irrational and less hermetic than naturalistic and novelistic inheritance that I guess people who are trained to write would come upon. Um, I think I was lucky in a lot of ways just not to ever buy too much into that um, because it's just allowed me to do things kind of my own way. Mm -hmm. I kind of don't want to leave Conrad Lorenz very soon, or I don't want to leave the idea of villain. Knowing Lorenz is a, a, a Nazi, knowing... Uh, like thinking about the idea that you've got streets named after probably Lorenz too, right? Other than just Claude uh, Bernard in France, it'd be like you know seeing streets now with what Mengele or um, you know Goebbels, Goebbels Avenue um, in Germany. These are similar things, and and I think your work is trying to express that in some ways, right? We we need to undo these hero making tales and. Um, even humans as heroes themselves, like the human isn't a heroic beast on the planet. It's, it's a, it's a catastrophe making one generally. (laughs) So, um, so to me, I think your work is doing this in every single line, which again, makes it one kind of hard to read, um, (laughs) only because it takes time too, right? I got to spend time with it. I got to think about it. Um, I'm in my notes. I wrote your work prompts me to leave it Mm. in Netflix. That's a bad thing. (laughs) <laughs> but but to me, you're, you know, reading uh, an, a very fascinating line starts me thinking about what you wrote. And so I don't move to the next line. Um, yeah. I spend time with that line and I don't try to think, where's this line going? I think about that line, which I think is interesting also. Uh, it, it's not always carrying me forward to some uh, conclusion. Because what concludes death, I suppose? Well, right. And I feel like these are more, I don't think of stories, uh, you brought up the heroic just in general. And I think you're right that the heroic is our narrative model, right? Right. Um, The hero, the conflict, the resolution, and we end. None of what I work on really works like that anyway, because normally there isn't one hero or even one main character or even one type of character. Um, and often the conflicts are, they're sort of um, baked in and it's really an inquiry, almost, I would say, an exhaustion <laughs> of the ways in which people use that conflict to try to have propulsion. Mm. And then there's kind of, you realize at a certain point, like this conflict is really stuck. Um, there's really a, a staring contest here and, and until we move past it uh, or, until we, or until we really change our mentality or change our consciousness or our awareness here, like we're, we, we, 
we're stuck there, but we could go further. We could think in a different way if we ask different questions. And so I'm actually much more interested in the questions than, yeah, resolution narratively or something like that. So it's that effect of being able to to witness and think that I would love more often of. Yeah. Right, right, right. I'm going to actually suggest that you do have heroes, um, it seems to me, right? I mean, yeah. Hedegaard is a, is a hero of sorts in that little brief space. Um, yeah. Your narrator, I, I believe Fanny is your narrator. <laughs> Fanny, yeah. Yeah, she's a, a kind of a hero, right? Um, Kicking and screaming, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's the uh, obstruction to the hero, narrative that's correct. yeah and that's in the fact that's that's kind of a different role than a hero yeah, it's like yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. person who must co-arise with the heroic to yeah to obstruct yeah. to be in the way yeah oh totally <laughs> So coming to your work and seeing so much of it be factual, and this is a part of, you know, trying to understand uh, process, trying to understand how we describe what we're reading. Again, these are, you know, terms in which we like to have the idea of clear uh, demarcations, right? That's fiction, that's poetry, that's nonfiction, that's biography. Um, here, it, here it all is on the page with your books, Right here, here is every aspect of of dramatic, um, linear, nonlinear writing that sort of forces you to question: Do I think to myself as I'm reading *Experimental Animals*, a reality fiction? As I read it, do I think this is Claude Bernard in all factuality? Uh, there's more to Claude Bernard, I suppose, than what's here, but this is factually Claude Bernard. What parts are uh, you know, fictions that sort of subvert my ability to believe I'm reading fact. Does that, well, is that, that making was, any sense? Was, yeah, I, I do understand. And okay. I think there's a different answer for okay. almost every <laughs> single piece I've ever written because okay, I, okay. I research almost everything, but the way in which that research uh, permeates a piece is sort of dependent per piece. Mm. So in experimental animals, yeah, I mean, every almost every line that Claude says or writes or does is all from his own his own writing or speech mm. or letters or it's all his language. And in fact, most every character that is true for except his wife, Fanny, because, and I spent years on this, you know, I couldn't find her in the archive. I could find a few letters right. and a list yeah. and that was it. That's all that existed. And I realized I couldn't really write the book at first. I was just going to leave it at that, but I couldn't because I don't really like to invent characters quite like that. Like that's a very traditional fiction writing thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, but I ultimately realized that I had to, I had to do justice to her silence in the archive by really bringing her out in the book. So she is entirely, the voice of her in the book is entirely invented in that sense. Mm -hmm. Although some of the letters and lists and her list is, is there. Um, the other thing of course, is the silence of the animals in the story. Mm -hmm. You know, the animals themselves are not in the archives. So in some ways, it's a bit of a statement about what we archive, you know, what is in the historical record. Right. Um, that's why the book talks a lot about statues and, mm -hmm. and, you know, celebration days and streets and things like that, because right. it is that historical record that tends to skew our understanding of historical actors. Right. And um, that was so in that book, inventing Fanny was a big part of the process that I eventually came to. Mm. I tend to never really make things up. Okay. So you, when there's there when there's quotes or facts or stuff, it's usually I stick pretty closely to what I can have found in some historical sense. So I'm all, always in a conversation with history, mm -hmm. the historical process. And in fact, in personhood, 
in that piece of rational situation, the reason, part of the reason I, I wanted that to include that piece, which is in some ways kind of a weird piece to put in that book, is because it does really address the fact that it uses Pythagoras mm-hmm. and this other Greek character, Hippasus, to show that we really don't even know what we think we know about history. I'm fascinated by how we build stories out of our misunderstandings. <laughs> The funny part is that Pythagoras never wrote anything in his lifetime, nor did his contemporaries write about him. What? We don't know what he factually said, did, or thought. We do not know if he was even a mathematician, as there is no mention of mathematics in any early writings about him or his followers. The first accounts, written 150 or so years after he died, disagree extensively about his life. Only in the 4th, 5th centuries BCE, do hagiographies call him a divine being, positioning him as the origin of Plato's philosophy. That his teachings were largely secret justified the lack of written texts and allowed for many buried forgeries found centuries later. Thus, a situation. Inquiry tangles. One says Pythagoras ate some meat. Another, he was strictly vegetarian. Eudoxus, he not only abstained from animal food, but he would not come near butchers or hunters. Aristotle. The Pythagoreans refrain from eating the womb and the heart, the sea anemone, and some other things, but use all other animal food. Many say Pythagoras influenced Plato's metaphysics. Plato never mentions him. Aristotle only calls them the so-called Pythagoreans, who may have known of limiters and unlimiteds, though this is likely a reference to Hippasus. In Aristotle's missing treatise on these so-called Pythagoreans, he may have described Pythagoras as a miracle worker with a golden leg who bit a snake and was able to be in two places at once. Aristotle says he prohibited eating beans, but Aristoxenus says he valued beans most of all vegetables, since they were laxative. A student unrelenting, like it's the last thing she'll ever do. So if inquiries are infinite, isn't the only possible story irrational? Each is right, they are all wrong. The towering peduncle may be magnificent, but its appearance equals its death, or just the transfer of stored nourishment to the act of seeding. The flowering agave gives people soap, pens, awls, paper, needles, sugar, string, medicine, rope, tequila, fiber, and a variety of food and drink. Empedocles on Pythagoras, a man who possessed the greatest wealth of intelligence. Heraclitus, king of the charlatans. I hope I answered your question. <laughs> well, no, uh, no, that's good. The The Claude Bernard story begins to undo you know, the sort of national heroes, but also the idea of how things are properly done by humans. Like science itself, it seems to, like I walk around my, my neighborhood, right? It's like science is real. There are people right. trying to sort of put a flag in their yard that says, we believe in science, <laughs> right? But Claude Bernard is science. Right. But you totally, to me, you totally destroy him. 
the idea of a guy being that awful as you know and it being normalized this is a book really about sort of the rise of vivisection and, and the the rise of anti-vivisection i suppose the expression against this kind of cruelty but it's it's an expression against the science as an idea that comes out of this kind of work as well so i i do like that it's sort of exploding that so tell us a little bit more about claude bernard because i'm doing a radio show that's like one of talia field's books by never giving anyone any clue what we're talking about <laughs> And I, you know, again, the the human absurdity at the center of all of our bizarre narcissism always makes me laugh. Yeah. And I think I try to, you know, I try to really emphasize that humor everywhere I can because to me, ultimately, at the end of the day, it's so absurd yeah. um, how much we believe our own minds and our own stories. Yeah, Bernard was a big hero. I mean, he. I went to high school in France, and I mean, you couldn't pass the day without hearing about Claude Bernard. Hmm. Funnily, and now the students, he is no longer on the baccalaureate reading list. He hmm. was when I was there. Um, you know, so he has fallen away because, again, his torturous methods didn't actually result in a lot of good science. Um, but that it took forever for that to kind of work its way out. He was the first person given a state funeral as a scientist in France. Um, and really, it was the invention of the scientist as the national hero, as, as a cultural, you know, and scientists at the time were really trying to divorce themselves from politics, from the church, you know, and I, a lot of this I cover in my book. And they really collaborated with the state mm -hmm. to protect their practices and, 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 and have this appearance of science is neutral, science is above the fray. There's no politics. Nobody from no, no lay person should ever judge what science does. Right. Um, all of that legacy of all of that kind of um, hyper protectionism of science that states and laws and everybody does is it comes from that period of time. So I was very interested in looking at how we've landed where we are today, where it's basically an industrial complex, you know, the animal killing industrial complex of, right. of science. And I, and I didn't really understand where that had come from. And I was curious what the storyline was, because as you keep mentioning, it's not just, you know, stories like philosophies are not sort of, um, they're not neutral in terms of their impact. Right. We really tend to, I think, as people live the stories we believe in. And so it matters what stories we tell and are told and believe. One thing um, that we talked about with Jeff Sebo is just the, the sort of, I think, the understanding now that people have at least begun to recognize, you know, the torturousness of, of so many of these animal industries, right? And, and how they're often hidden from view. Your book, to me, rescues the animal. And I know you said there is no animal voice here, but in some ways, um, the descriptions of what, what are done to the animals, um, dogs in particular, uh, that, you know, the practice of cutting a particular vocal cord or vocal nerve uh, so right. that the animal doesn't cry out. Um, the practice of using curare, which basically paralyzes. Uh, yep, and, and silences. Curare comes from lianus trees, the bark boiled to a tar. Claude collects the jars and explores stories, beginning with Sir Walter Raleigh and the arrows of hardwood tipped with reeds and fastened with waxed cotton. Into a hole, a poisoned piece of wood is placed. Claude's red notebook. When the brain of a frog is removed, it becomes much more difficult to poison with curare. Why? After hundreds of experiments in which animals become paralyzed and yet continue to live, Claude realizes that this poison acts neither on the brain nor on the motor nerves, but on their connection. With curare, no agony. Life seems extinguished, but, Claude pretends astonishment, 
This is not to be. Appearances deceive. This death, which seems so free of pain, is actually accompanied by sufferings more atrocious than the imagination can invent. The victim is not deprived of sensation or intelligence, but only of the means of expressing these through movement. Maybe these apple-like fruits were what poisoned the insubordinate Eve, her jaw slackening without a scream. Curare offers the chance to enter this living machine, this theater of detrimental actions that we will define for you and explain. The heart still beating, the blood still turns red in the air. Of course, the animal feels every poke and jolt without a way to cry. Claude, what morality says we can't do to those like us? Science authorizes us to do to the animals. As too often happens at night in my room, dread freezes my body. Then the bed, apartment, the streets as I picture them, the wider city, the countryside, the heavens, everything is stranded and still until a raspy whine pulls me to a rabbit in a box in the kitchen. She's cut practically in half and relaxes into death when touched on the head. What kind of greeting is this, I think, holding her paw? Claude's red notebook. Rabbits lose their sugar when they're varnished. Would it be the same if their spinal cords were cut at the same time? I sense if you stare long enough into darkness, you begin to see shapes. The next night, as my eyes squeeze shut against the wailing from a nearby basement, I lift myself to the window. If I bear these tests willingly and move toward the pitiable howls, then it be done unto me according to thy word. If I resist this or act unwillingly, my load will only expand. And if I put it down and refuse, for sure, only worse things may come. Why is it all so hidden? So experimental animals tells of, of the time when it wasn't hidden. Right. You know, where this where this particular there was no laboratory behind the eight foot walls, behind the security cameras and the gates and the this and the that, and the laws in particular now. Hmm. But you know, at the time it was it was the radical form of science. And so it was in it was in basements, it was in stairways, and, and the animals screaming all the time in pain, and they would save these animals and keep them alive to the next day. And you know, and the, and so it agitated. The public, if we, if even for five minutes, we heard what's going on in a laboratory today, nobody could sit and abide it. Nobody, I don't believe anybody could, because I don't think you could hear that much pain and not want to act. And at the time, that's really what drove a lot of these women, a lot of the, it was the beginning of, you know, anti-cruelty societies, anti-cruelty laws, because people saw it everywhere around them. Horses in the street were being beaten. You know, it was just a kind of constant animal frenzy of pain. And I think that um, it's interesting to look back at that time when it was when it, things were just getting started before they've hardened into the invisibility that we live with now. Mm. It, it, you know, ag gag laws and you know all the terrible ways in which we keep people from knowing what's done in our name. And that's one of the arguments that a lot of the women in the in experimental animals made. Frances Cobb, Anna Kingsford. I mean, there's some hero women in that book mm -hmm. who really, really went to battle against this new science. They didn't believe that anything could come out of this kind of level of torture. But of course, the narrative became, well, those are hysterical women. Right. 
and people are hysterical, uh, you know, and they shouldn't critique science because they don't understand what comes out of it. But, you know, Claude Bernard didn't even believe in germ theory. I mean, he was incredibly backward um, in a lot of ways. But that narrative of like, well, you're if you're against animal experimentation, then you're hysteric. It's it's a it's a way to diminish an argument. Yeah. So I'm not interested in putting myself in the middle of that argument. <laughs> I am interested in the in the storylines of that argument and how it's been so lopsided. That's what I'm interested yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. There's I think an article in there in Experimental Animals near the end where which it kind of talks about the craziness of the anti-vivisectionists, right? And descri- right. <laughs> and describe some of this action, uh, the way the women are crazy and the way they do crazy things like bursting into the or. Being being in the laboratory scene and and you know grabbing the the dog or cat or grabbing the, the scientist or hitting the scientist with an umbrella uh, right. and they're just crazy hysterical women from a biology society lecture by dr magnon reprinted in the medical tribune mental pathology the insanity of the anti-vivisectionists For several years, a feeling, otherwise respectable for the protection of animals against brutalities or useless service, has become the departure point of societies calling themselves protectors of animals. In this environment, eminent animal lovers, we gladly forget that there are still humans who need fixing, from the philanthropic point of view, so let's not hesitate to propose things like retirement accounts for old and sick animals. In this intellectual milieu, Sensitive souls, unbalanced minds, and degenerates get hold of themes they exaggerate until they become a true delirium. This is what has caused the insanity of the anti-vivisectionists. First of all, it goes without saying that this isn't a new pathology. It's simply one of the many manifestations by which hereditary insanity shows itself. An example of this is an ill person checked into St. Anne after a scandal at the Viet slaughterhouse. She is 37 years old, and her paternal grandmother died at Charenton, while her mother, age 60, suffers a chronic delirium. Heredity has converged on this girl, and her maladaptive personality showed itself early. For six months, she has refused to eat meat to oppose the slaughter of animals. She equally takes in the most unhappy animals and leaves each day with a basket of provisions to distribute to the skinniest strays she can find. She regales the butchers to stop their murders and was arrested at the slaughterhouse of Villette in the midst of a fiery speech. Another example shows the ambitious, aggressive anti-vivisectionist for whom love of animals is only a pretext for noisy demonstrations. There's a woman, 38 years old, whose mother, suffering chronic delirium, died after 20 years of mental illness. This anti-vivisectionist is rowdy, aggressive, in a word, the true heroine of the genre. As many hereditary sufferers, unbalanced as she is, she is not lacking in brains. She derives satisfaction in telling me the active part she played in the campaign against experimental physiology. She has, she says, the spirit of the future and doesn't want to belong to a ponderous time with average intelligence in mind. She doesn't want to partake of the mores of her sex, so she breaks with all these ridiculous conditions and doesn't fear falling back on spicy language. She's brave, not afraid of a fight, and wants to defend the weak. Physical pain barely affects her, she walks in front, and she hates humanity for its wickedness. Even if an animal experiment would save her own son, she says she would formally oppose it, not wanting to owe the life of her son to the life of an animal. In everything else, human pain barely registers to her, whereas she's moved by the very idea of animal suffering. 
She happily describes being entirely detached from human emotions. She loves her son because she controls him, dominates him, and she hopes to raise him in the same hatred of humanity and love of animals. She respects her husband. She considers him a friend, almost a comrade, but she decided to leave her husband to find a better situation rather than separate from her cats. You know, making the point that there, there often aren't voices of those women either, and if they're not, if Fanny's voice isn't heard as, as you know, someone obstructing Claude Bernard, um, she's heard as like a harpy. There's the idea that she's ruined Claude Bernard's life in a lot of ways, or you know, that she's a, ter- a terrible wife, right? She's not yeah. the right kind of wife. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, those things are are how women are depicted as well. So your book does a a good job, really, of sort of displaying the way that has been manipulated as well or used to to tell these stories um again i thought of nietzsche because didn't he like his his bout of final insanity was like trying to stop someone from beating a horse yeah well there's a lot of people i mean i i tell this story because in the victor hugo i found so many you know little tiny references to victor hugo's participation in the anti-vivisection movement when i went to the official victor hugo archives they they rejected my findings completely oh no he never had anything to do with that um yet i even though i had his signature on things they were like no no there's no way it's the other victor hugo (laughs) (laughs) it's a very common name yeah yeah yeah. okay (laughs) nice well it's good to know that they're continuing to keep the smoke screens going Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. To save your heroes. What's wrong with being anti-vivisectionist? Like, again, you've already said it. Like, if you're against science doing these things, you're against helping humanity. Mm-hmm. That's it. That's all there is to it. You can't look at the facts or how eff- efficacious something is or whether, you know, I mean, this is why, um, you know, Stephen Johnson, I, I'm a very big fan of him because he his project as a science writer is always to show the kinds of alternative narratives that have led us to the sort of health mm-hmm. successes that we've had. Mm-hmm. Um he really shows that like epidemiology and, and vaccines and, you know, sort of public health efforts, hygiene, these are the things that have made it in some ways more tangible difference yeah. Yeah. Um, than this kind of bench science that came out of especially that particular period of time. Anna Kingsford. Very shortly after my entry as a student at the Paris Medical School, and when as yet I was new to the horrors of the vivisectional method, I was one morning while studying alone in the Natural History Museum suddenly disturbed by a frightful burst of screams of a character more distressing than words can convey, proceeding from some chamber or another on another side of the building. I called the porter in charge of the museum and asked him what it meant. He replied with a grin, It's only the dogs being vivisected in the laboratory. I expressed my horror and he retorted, scrutinizing me with surprise and amusement, for he could never have heard a student speak of vivisection in such terms. What do you want? It's for science. Therefore he left me and I sat down alone and listened. As much as I had heard and said and even written before that date about vivisection, I found myself for the first time in its actual presence. And there swept over me a wave of such extreme mental anguish that my heart stood still under it. It seemed as if suddenly all the laboratories of torture throughout Christendom stood open before me with their manifold unutterable agonies exposed and the awful future the atheistic science was everywhere making for the world, rose up and stared me in the face. Then and there, burying my face in my hands, with tears of agony, I prayed for strength and courage to labor effectively for the abolition of so vile a wrong and to do at least what one heart and one voice might to root this curse of torture from the land.
When you visit him to speak out, the chief of the University of Paris Hospital, Léon Lefeu, argues that vivisection is necessary as a protest on behalf of the independence of science against the interference of clerics and moralists. When all the world has reached to the high intellectual level of France and no longer believes in God, the soul, moral responsibility, or any nonsense of that kind, but makes practical utility the only rule of conduct, then, and not until then, can science afford to dispense with vivisection. To refute the vitalists and to display the animal machine, your professor, de Lenessa, shows the beating of a fish's heart, grafting of a rat's paw, decapitation of a dog, development of a tadpole's tail, all continuing after the deaths of the original creatures. Original creatures? You laugh, looking around. What does that mean? Now I feel like I'm going to say these things and I'm going to get attacked. Um, You know, I was really looking at um, very particularly that story. I'm not an academic and I'm not like someone who wants to argue these points in a wider context. I actually really try to use the artwork I'm making Mm -hmm. to bring these stories to light in the way that I have really thoroughly researched them and can stand behind that. Um, I don't feel like I'm comfortable with someone. I'm not just going to write articles about it. I don't write anything else about it. I don't talk about it publicly in Mm. some other way. I'm really interested in the stories, the arguments, where we end up stuck, why, where's our narrative dead ends, you know, yeah, I get it. I get it. I mean, but in some ways, I, as you mentioned, Hugo, you begin with Hugo's consideration of John Brown. Right. Um, and you end with John Brown on some, like close to the yeah. end as well, right? So you've got John Brown bookending the book. Yeah. Right? So that's that's your choice as, a, as someone trying to convey a particular story. Right. Um, and that's actually partly because, I mean, he doesn't quite, it's not the very, very, very last, but you're right. And it, it's partly because that's what I found when I was doing the research. I didn't, um, that, that the, the, that movement, the abolitionist movement coming out of America mm-hmm. at the time was such an inspiration for a lot of the movements that emerged in England and France. Mm. Um, and so, uh, and John Brown was an enormous hero uh, or figure, I should say. Right. Um, in France at that time. And it was really because of that, how much I saw it come up again and again and again, Hmm. um, that I felt comfortable using it. Do you want to try to really uh, quickly sort of tease out the use of Zola in here? Zola. The naturalist school reestablishes the broken relationship between man and nature. It comes from the depths of modern rationalism. A dictionary from 1727 defines a naturalist as he who explains nature by mechanical, not supernatural, laws. The critic Charles Bigot describes naturalism as a child who, like any child, cries a lot. He publicly complains that Zola likes to think he killed off Victor Hugo and Romanticism and that outside of naturalism, nothing goes, neither for writers or for governments. Bigot points out there's no room for jokes, only reason and truth, and thus Zola has only one refrain, use any means necessary. But romanticism has been so old for 40 years, it's practically dead. Zola accuses it of blocking the century, but he's 20 years off. Zola wants to study nature and the human document, while his formula is that first the observer sees things, and then the experimenter appears and moves the characters around the story to show how the succession of facts will determine the events put forward to study. 
Making use of his experience in journalism, Zola imports setting, details, historical figures, a mixed texture of truth and invention into his books, but he goes too far when he says that the more there are newspapers, the less there should be novels. Zola, the real novel is news, and here is where reality makes its greatest impression. Ferdinand Brutenier. But what is this materialist? It's an art that sacrifices form for matter, drawing for color, feeling for sensation, ideas for the real, that doesn't hesitate before indecency or triviality, even brutality, that speaks the language of the crowd, finding it easier to give free rein to the basest instincts of the masses than to raise their intelligence to the level of art. What is this fully experimental? It's the pretense of doing art with science and with industry. Zola. The novel should aim to compete with and outdo the hospital. Zola insists that, like positivism, like materialism, naturalism equals the new republic as the formula of the new social state. The state is scientific and impersonal. Here is what exists. Try to come to terms with it. Hippolyte Taine. Don't describe or paint. Dissect. Zola to Edmond de Goncourt. The truth is, the book that speaks to me, that has a charm, is the last, in which I'm going to tell the story of a scientist. And the scientist, I would be quite tempted to model him on Claude Bernard. With all the communications in his papers and his letters, this would be fun. I would make a scientist with a backward and bigoted wife who would destroy his work as soon as he did it. Flaubert, the two muses of the modern age are history and science. You know, Zola was so enamored, and, and many people were with with sort of what I would more call scientism, yeah. like you know the idea that science was going to sort of deliver humanity from all ills, politics. You know, you see it in every kind of everyone wanted the science of this, the science of that, right. um, and. Uh, Zola really emulated Bernard to the point, of course, where he wrote the experimental novel based on Claude's experimental medicine um, and got quite pilloried for it from the science side. But it really, to him, he thought that he could really reinvent uh, literature in this kind of scientific way. Now, the irony, of course, of my book is that I'm in some ways closer to Zola right. than I am to a lot of other naturalist writers who came out of the 19th century, because, of course, I've done all this research and I'm trying to construct a novel along the manner of Zola in a certain way. Mm -hmm. So there is an irony there. His relationship to animals, both in his own work and later in life, is, a, is something I critique in the book. And, of course, he excused all of Bernard's. Right. He didn't look in that, that aspect of Bernard's behavior, but he did want to write a book based on Bernard's life. Um, so we share an interest there uh, as right, well. Right. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I think it was a, is it Dr. Pascal that is. Uh, yeah, Dr. Pascal. Yeah. He, I, in in the archives, there's his notes for that, which are really based on Bernard. That's just great. Um, and uh, yeah, I just I will make note of this. I found the uh, uh, online the experimental novel from 1893 is on Marxists.org. I mean, Zola, uh, for, you know, to give him his due, at yeah. the time he was really looking at things in a way as a researcher mm. and, I, and, and then making art out of it. And this is something I wanted to say, which is actually there's a long legacy of literature that uses research. Mm. It's not a, 
you know, it's it's like Flaubert. I mean, you look at Bouvard and Pécuchet, which is one of my favorite books in the on the planet. But even back to Tristram Shandy, I mean, the idea of a ruptured surface, the idea of integrated texts and right. and found found texts and sort of different media, and you know, this is something that I think accompanies the history of the novel from the very beginning. It's just that it kind of fades in and out. But I don't think it's a it's not a current invention. Right. Um, I really I I can trace back lots of very influential. Um, writers who've used uh, research and uh, kind of that ruptured surface, um, you know, very important people all throughout the history of, of the novel. Well, we have someone similar, I suppose, I mean, in terms of thinking about the the way in which science proceeded here in the U.S. as well. I think there's a letter in there from um, uh, Bernard to Asa Gray, maybe, or yeah. uh, and right. Asa Gray was, uh, I think, at Harvard at the time, uh, one of um, Louis Agassiz's colleagues. And Agassiz, of course, is problematic in how American science followed uh, the sort of museum animal collection. Exactly. I think it's actually Darwin. I mean, the, 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 trad- the, the way that Darwin... Darwin appears in this particular story as a kind of tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, I really think of him in some ways as the most tragic figure in the book hmm. because he really acted against his own beliefs in supporting vivisection when it when he did at a crucial moment. And he really sank the anti-vivisection movement in England for the reason that he wanted to, he was convinced that he had to protect science. But he himself was so appalled by pain um, and blood that it kind of determined his entire career. And the reason I include his work on worms was because he was so much a kind of naturalist like that. You know, he was really observational without the whole cut it apart vivisection impulse. Um, But he he plays such a pivotal role in the story in how he really tanks, you know, the efforts being made by Francis Cobb and the other women at the time. You also note how some of the women, I think it may be Kingsford, who sort of, uh, for lack of a better term, sort of undercuts her own authority by being, you know, one of the people who believe in seances and things like that, right? Well, and also, again, it's it plays how the sexism works, mm-hmm, right? Like right. she, her, her alternative beliefs, her her beliefs in dreams, her just the way in which logic and narrative and 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 ethics, mm. really ethics, work for her, she's diminished and sort of um, sidelined. Right. Um, whereas ethical considerations are overtly put aside by the scientists. I mean, they have many many examples of places where in the storyline they they advance their own stories by saying that ethics don't matter. And scientific ethics are different, and no one should weigh in on them except experts. We see it today. We hear a lot of the same logic. That was so surprising to me when I researched this, is mm. how contemporary yeah. so much of it sounds. Yeah. Obviously, many of the themes that we touched on already are in personhood. You know, opening the book with, uh, with High Adam, even more than like reading about vivisection, and, and even though it's very clear in experimental animals what's happening, yeah, you kind of know what's going on, but it's not like it's graphic. Weirdly, I'd say, you know, High Adam is graphic in its exposure, in, in its sort of, um, not discussion, but its narration of the pain that's visited on birds. And the big guy said... Let there be a living room. And then the guy separated the living room from the kitchen, and he saw that this was good. So he said, let a garage go off the kitchen. And this was good. So the guy said, let's fence in some grass and add a few hydrangeas. He saw that these were good, and these are the generations of X. And the guy said, let us have a pet to amuse us indoors. 
So he bought an illegally smuggled wild-caught pet store parrot and named it Adam and saw that it was good. And the guy and his wife begat two children and said, let us talk to Adam when funny and cute and ignore Adam when the television's on. And the children wanted to let Adam out of the cage, so the guy said, let the living room not be covered in shit, and it was not so good. And there were years, and there were vacations, and there were nights and days, and the guy and his wife and two children saw that Adam only liked one of them now, and bit the rest if they come into the room, and screamed all the time and plucked her feathers out. Then the neighbors complained, and the guy said, let Adam live in the basement where no one can hear. And Adam was not in their image. And the big guy got angry because the screams and the bloody biting were upsetting the family. Banishing the bird to the basement was not enough, so he said, Let Adam go forth from the house, and mateless and heartbroken will be his days. It seemed like that's all there was these days. The biters, the screamers, liars, and those who couldn't follow simple rules. So it came upon everything that the guy said, Lo, I am going to destroy them, said the guy, along with the earth. But the guy's son Noah was a good boy, and of a kind who had learned over the generations how to be docile, to listen to the guy's orders, to follow the rules, and never bite or hide, lie, steal, or fly away. Only Noah, the good boy, would survive. This time we're going to do it right, said the guy. This time no garden, no fruit, no talking snake. This time it's all surveillance from the get-go, all stage set and props. Flood the planet, start with that. Then we'll get to a good houseboat with cement rooms and nine-gauge steel and good old Noah to steer us to Mars. No more bountiful growth, no more florid ecstasies set among unique forms of life. All will be spaceship and robots and short-snouted, floppy-eared, baby-faced customers. With you, my beloved pets, I shall make my zoo and covenant. You shall live in cages two by two under video and LED. The pairs will bond and mate in captivity or not at all. Thus it was Noah that did all that. He did everything the big guy commanded, and he named and paired off pets, and lo, as the waters swelled and churned and rose up over the mountains, there was only one face upon the earth. So that that piece, obviously it's infused with a bit of Vicky, Mm-hmm. Hearn, because of course Adam. Adam was th- this piece very much based on my experience working at this particular shelter, mm. which is called Foster Parrots, the New England Wildlife Sanctuary. Uh, they just unfortunately had an enormous fire. I don't even know if I can say this. You know, all of the cockatoos but one have perished. Oh. Um, so I worked in the cockatoo wing. Mm. Um, and that's mostly the characters, most of them. There's some macaws, of course, in that piece as well. But these are real people to me. I mean, it right. was like, you know, they lost about 80 birds wow. um, mm. out of maybe 300. Um, but still, it was the whole cockatoo wing except mm. one. Mm. So there's a piece. So this happened just very, very recently. The, the very frontest piece of the book is a bird named Poppy. And of course, at the very back of the book is a bird named Lightning on a very back cover waving. Not only is it difficult to have suffered with these birds their lives, but now it's a it's a bit of an elegy piece, which makes me even sadder. The situation that we put captive animals in is unforgivable yeah. to me. The justifications, the stories we tell, it's all not okay. And I, that's why the Adam, going back to the biblical story, this is so baked into the Judeo-Christian tradition. In Adam, there's the Christian tradition. And even in Happy, you know, I take Buddhism to task on the way that animals are 
are narrated in Buddhism. So I think that our problems go very, very deep when it comes to our relationship to these wild animals. Um, yeah, I think one of the things that people forget or aren't able to understand or maybe have never even thought about is we're not aware of parakeets and their, their habits as beings, right? They're birds. You know, that's what we do with these, these categories, right? They're dogs, they're birds, they're monkeys. They're, um, and, you know, each bird is unique in its living, and it's kind of fascinating to re- to read it and not realize how emotional one can get when one thinks about the the acts of birds who are damaged by relations with humans uh, and how they respond to it, how they harm themselves to try to speak. Yeah, the ways in which silence and pain go together, or mm. speech and pain, and and the idea of symptoms, like so much of what language as a surface symptom of so many other kinds of situations. I think that's something that I, I use in a lot of, I try to use in a lot of different uh, versions of, of the stories, of different stories. Mm-hmm. The suffering of being captive or being oppressed or being in a condition that one can't control or confined and not being able to communicate properly. I think that's, that's what we see in the zoos. And that's what we, I've been so fascinated with, the, with that, the reading of those symptoms by some people and the complete negation of them by others. Do you want to tell a little bit about your own relationship with the non-human rights project? Yeah. When I um, published Experimental Animals, we had a book launch party in New York that was a benefit for a non-human rights project. Mm. So actually my relationship to them has, well, I've been a fan for years, um, but I actually, even when Experimental Animals came out, I already had sort of, you know, sort of dedicated a lot of my effort towards supporting them. Similarly to sort of bird lovers, there was pieces already in progress, and those pieces have accumulated into pers- into the collection that is personhood. The happy piece, you know, I really wanted to think through that case about how what what other kind of storylines are involved with how we think about elephants and how we think about um, this kind of relationship to the self and the mirror the mirror test that was used uh, so prevalently in that case, mm-hmm. like what, and I wanted to just sort of tease out some of the more literary and, and sort of uh, narrative themes um, in that. And also this idea of habeas corpus itself, a little bit of the history of that and how it has been expanded in a lot of other countries, not habeas corpus, but the, cor- the idea of personhood mm-hmm. to apply to things like rivers and mountains, you know, that we're not even talking about humans and animals when we're talking about personhood right. legally. There is a movement, I'm sure you're aware of it, a sort of beinghood, right? Like, a, you know, I, I know that personhood is such an ingrained legal category. But in my book, I really try to explore not just, not just the legal category, but why we are humanly so involved with this idea of, of who our person is, a personality. And, and I think the different pieces in the collection are trying to aim at very different ways to approach where the boundaries of that question are. Are you saying that maybe happy is unhappy in the Bronx Zoo? Mr. Wise, yes. The question is not whether the Bronx Zoo is treating her well, or whether it's not treating her well, or whether they are giving her medical care or they are not. The question is whether or not happy should be confined there at all. Non-human animals mostly have one actual right in America to be the recipients of trusts. So, Mr. Wise argues, let's add a second simple right, to not be arbitrarily confined. 
The Supreme Court already says you can't look at a single characteristic and deprive an entity of all the rights because of a single characteristic. Happy is an elephant. That's a single characteristic. On the mirror stage. But the mirror splits an object from oneself to own the potential elusive person like a piece of furniture. A king among things to be seen and sat on, to be cared for, but also to uphold yourself and do your duty, including to be marked or ridden if necessary, to be sold or sturdy or perhaps skinned or stuffed if necessary, to see oneself as others do, to be humbled, in other words, as a reflection of a world that would claim to name you, to ask you to please remove that mark, to prove yourself, to make something of yourself, a mental representation begging the question of if you have an eye to see with it, or one to know yourself with your eyes, this external whole that sums up and idealizes what you might see of yourself, but always first a set of characteristics defined by relations and tests of tests of how one perceives oneself through other eyes. Mr. Wise. In 2005, Happy became the first elephant to pass the mirror self-recognition test, considered to be the true indicator of an animal's self-awareness, and thought to correlate with higher forms of empathy and altruistic behavior. Staring at our reflections has also been linked to starvation and death, Narcissus. Mr. Wise, one who understands the concept of dying and death must possess a sense of self. Both chimpanzees and elephants demonstrate an awareness of death, by reacting to dead family or group members. Having a mental representation of the self, which is a prerequisite for mirror self-recognition, likely confers an ability to comprehend death. It's one of the questions I have with Jeff Sebo is like trying to understand how mirror recognition or, you know, recognizing the self in a, in a mirror becomes a, a kind of way in which you thinks, uh, think a creature has meaning or mat- should matter like to humans or as humans do, right? Like a, a human deciding on a test that makes you more like a human or, you know. Right. I, I feel like I both represent what the test is because, right. I, again, I never want to not represent uh, the truth of, of what somebody's intention is right. for them. Right. And so there's the intention of what that test is. And it is symbolic because it has been used in these very symbolic ways. I do, I think, also go into why the sort of the underlying absurdity of a mirror, which is such a weirdly human. I mean, going back to the story of Narcissus and the history of mirrors and what it is to be a a, a mirror object, to be an object to yourself. Um, And then I talk, of course, about the master slave dialectic and other kinds of things that that are related to our concept of mirroring, um, even mirror neurons as an empath- empathic response. But but yeah, it's, a, it's an odd, I agree. I mean, I think th- this goes back to animal behavior in general. I think we, you know, all of the tests we set up for animals are really on the face, extraordinarily absurd. Right. There's not just the animal world in here, but uh, there's, you know, tumbleweeds in here. The idea of invasive spe- species or the humans who decide what's invasive species as well is an interesting thing to expose or to think about also. Do you do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, there's a great, um, I was just had a wonderful conversation. There's a great young philosopher, David Frank, and he sp- focuses a lot on invasive species ethics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so um, we were having a great laugh over the fact that you you know there's so this is a 
this is a tangle of narratives like like no one's business. Yeah. Um, you know, you do one thing to solve one problem and you create five other problems. Yeah. And, you know, what about and what is the original that makes something invasive? And what is, you know, to get back to what original are we talking about and where? And so that's why I talk about even maps and, and names of countries. And it's such a there's so much arbitrary discourse in the question of invasive species right. ethics and biology. Um, and I, so I tried to kind of, that's why I called it a vaudeville. Um, well, it's called, you know, turns before the curtain, but right. the implication is it's a bit of a vaudeville. And we put ourselves in this kind of position of the audience, like, oh, sh- oh shucks, oh shucks, <laughs> right. you know, oh no, here's some feral pigs. Oh no, there's a tumbleweed. Like as though there's no participation on our part right. often of, you know, of what's happening. It's a, it's an incredibly interesting and fascinating topic to me. This this is a very abridged version of my thinking on it. I wouldn't be surprised if I come back to it in a longer form. Um, but I do find I do find the question of invasive species, the ethics of it, to be quite fascinating. Do you eradicate things? Well, then what's the? That's like essentially a holocaust, right? Mm-hmm. And it and it really asks questions about individuals versus populations. You know, you would never do one thing to an individual, but can you do it to a whole population? Yeah. Well, whose pain and suffering are we to prioritize, right? Like. Why would we get rid of feral pigs who are perfectly intelligent, wonderful, sentient creatures to protect, you know, this farmer or that field of of crops? You know, we get into very dicey territory very quickly. And so I'm fascinated by, of course, from my point of view, how all these stories land in a huge jumble and a tangle and then get stuck. Yeah. Well, you, you demonstrated a bit um, in your, what I think is a more personal piece in, in the book, right? On the health of your stream, you're, you're actually in, you know, being invasive yourself there. I, I say that in every book, there's one part where it's just personal, yeah. <laughs> only usually ever one. And, and then you picked out in this book, that piece. Um, yeah, it's really about the pathetic fallacy, how we, which I think is at the heart of a lot of it. Are we anthropomorphizing? Is that a good thing? How, or or it, do, do we end up sort of seeing the story on, so much on our own terms that we are blind to sort of our impact um, outside of our, our own heroic storyline? So that, yeah, it's a, it's a self-conscious example in that story of my participation as a as an actor in a story, not really even cognizant of of what story I'm playing out. Right, right. Uh, your story was important to you and and your actions in it, right? You, right. The, the key to the to thinking about the fish in your pond or, or your stream was that it's you that's thinking about them, <laughs> right? That exactly. that you're yeah, exactly. you're the one telling the story. The fish aren't telling the story. You are exactly yeah, right. exactly yes. It's very pathetic. I love that it's a pathetic policy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, which at the time, of course, that's not what it meant originally and stuff. But it, you know, but it's a. Um, it's a foible. It's a narrative foible. It's a human foible. Uh, and it's what lands us in a lot of actions that are questionable. So, yeah, yeah I like in, in one section, you, you end it with, is it a healthy stream? I didn't think to ask. Yeah, right. right. I am very involved in now in the sort of Northeast woods kind of ecology. And I've been watching a number of fledging bird families mm-hmm. in the last few weeks. And, you know, you become quite aware of what they have to eat or don't right, right. and how the weather impacts that and the species that they have evolved to eat right. or the, the, the kind of environment in which they can thrive, you know, and you realize like, oh, yeah, in fact, this invasive shrub that's taken over half the woods here, that's preventing other native sure. plants growing and having a direct impact on the migratory birds. And so, it, you know, it's, it's this is what I mean about there's right. like 
really a hundred stories all entangled here. And I think the ethics of it is really quite fascinating. I, I think it's uh, Rachel Carson in Silent Spring, who is, you know, basically, you know, trying to hammer home the point of this, of the harm we are doing via uh, chemistry, basically, you know, the chemical harm we've been doing or had been or continue to do. And she asserts this, I think, at some point in the book, that there is a right way to intervene. It seemed like the whole book, she was telling us that you know, this kind of human intervention tends to have unintended consequences, uh, tends to lead to people making decisions that don't have any clue about what's going on, tends to lead to people applying toxins who don't care about the toxins. They're just doing a job. Um, and then thinking about, well, who are these people who are making the right decisions to intervene? Um, which, again, seems to be part of everything that I've read of yours. So, yeah. so uh, you know, is this question of the, the sort of the right to intervene? Well, it's, it goes back a little to a kind of Buddhist idea or Eastern philosophical idea that you philosophy is only as good as the moment in which you make a decision about what's right to do. You know, having an idea about what's right to do doesn't work in every context, right? And right. and so it's often our it's our concepts of things that often dim our awareness, or as Vicky would say, it's a, it's gets the language gets in the way of awareness mm. as a storyteller. A fundamental project of mine is to try to peel back to, to by the excess of those stories or by exhausting them, by really looking into all of the stories to come to a place where there's a different kind of sense of what can be done. What's right is often clearer, I think, than we think if we just pull away some of the overlays of, of stories that we that we would rather rely on to make decisions about action. Descartes, from a letter to the Marquess of Newcastle, 1646. In fact, none of our external actions can show anyone who examines them that our body is not just a self-moving machine, but contains a soul with thoughts, with the exception of words, or other signs that are relevant to particular topics without expressing any passion. I say words or other signs because deaf mutes use signs as we use spoken words, and I say that these signs must be relevant to exclude the speech of parrots without excluding the speech of madmen, which is relevant to particular topics even though it does not follow reason. I add also that these words or signs must not express any passion to rule out not only cries of joy or sadness, but also whatever can be taught by training to animals. Now, it seems to me very striking that the use of words so defined is something peculiar to human beings. Montaigne and Charon may have said that there is more difference between one human being and another than between a human being and an animal, but there has never been known an animal so perfect as to use a sign to make other animals understand something which expressed no passion. This seems to me a very strong argument to prove that the reason why animals do not speak as we do is not that they lack the organs, but that they have no thoughts. That's our show. Thanks to Talia Field for spending so much time with us and reading from her work. Field's most recent book is Personhood, just published and available from New Directions. And support for Interchange comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas. In-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles at limestonepost.com. 
and from Cardinal Spirits. Located at 922 South Morton Street, Cardinal Spirits is an Indiana craft distillery in Bloomington, making whiskey, gin, vodka, rum, and liqueurs. Hours and more information online at cardinalspirits.com. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Cade Young is our executive producer. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB.